Quick disclaimer, it's the Aries episode, so there's a little bit more violence this week. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Greek myths with the stories of the Olympians. We'll talk about the creation of the world, the story of the first werewolf, and Pygmalion. Oh, and I guess some stuff about Ares, because this is technically his episode. The creature this week is one you don't want to spook, because of, yes, his burning diarrhea. This is Myths and Legends, episode 355. There's something about Ares. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're going through the stories of the Olympians, the ruling gods from Greek myth. This week, it's Ares, the god of war. And we'll quickly see that everyone hates Ares. Dionysus sat back. Oof. Ares, huh? They had already covered Hermes, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, Apollo, Artemis, and Athena. They still had Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, and maybe Demeter? The only thing standing in their way was this... this clod of a god. Xanthius, the human Dionysus enslaved and also used as a podcast producer, said he was a bit out of the loop. Why was Ares a clod of a god? Didn't he have an affair with Aphrodite? Wasn't he the god of war who relished in bloodshed? Seemed like that checked a lot of boxes for a salacious, action-packed episode. He's one note, the blood-reeking god of war who loves carnage. We could knock this out in like, I don't know, two or three minutes. Dionysus flipped through his notes. Xanthius basically said all the interesting bits about Ares right there. War, sometimes, though he always loses to Athena when they go toe to sandal, on account of her better strategy, and the affair with Aphrodite. Well, what should we do? Xanthius asked. They had 30 to 45 minutes with two two-minute ad breaks they were contractually bound to deliver. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, Dionysus nodded. And what about Romans? Xanthius nodded. Okay, what's the pitch? Dionysus just said Romans. Dionysus said Romans because unlike the Greeks, the Romans loved Ares. Mars. They love Mars. Xanthius corrected. Same thing. Dionysus flipped a page. They're not, though? I know we've said it's basically a reskin, but that's reductive. Xanthius explained. The Romans didn't just copy and paste the Greek pantheon to their own and rename them. They had different gods and goddesses, and upon further interaction with the Greeks and veneration of the Greek culture, they identified their own deities with the Greeks. So their Jupiter was similar to Zeus, their Hera was similar to their Juno. There was an interplay and a conversation between cultures. So, if we're looking at this hypothetically from 2,000 years in the future, there would be an effect where everything was flattened out, and it would look like it was always the case that Jupiter equals Zeus, or Minerva equals Athena. But that's only because each influenced the perception of the other. 
Nowhere is this more striking than with Ares and Mars, where Ares is, basically, reviled for us here in the Greek world, and Mars represents order and, paradoxically, peace through warfare. Like Tacitus would say, Rome will make a desert and call it peace. Are you quite finished, Professor Stories? Dionysus cut in. He could feel the listeners dropping off. Besides, Xanthius was only confirming what he said, that Mars, the Roman Ares, was the only version that people actually liked. So they do some Roman stories. Creation of the world, Pygmalion. In the corner of the room, Ares raised his hand. Hi, sorry, did he actually have to be here for any of this? Oh my gosh, rah, rah, no one understands you, warrior man, Dionysus turned. Ares said because he was actually looking forward to this, for people to hear his story. For so long, people thought he was just death and carnage and warfare. Ares stood, and Xanthius made sure the mic was running. After the Titanomachy, but before the Gigantonomachy, Ares had been born into one of the rare times of peace on Olympus. He heard, really, there was no peace on Olympus, ever. When the Olympians didn't have any external enemy, they turned on each other. Zeus and Hera had never been in love, and Ares knew where he and his twin sister, Eris, came from. From Zeus, pretending to be an injured cuckoo and forcing himself on their mother. Hera had become the queen, and Ares and Eris were the only true heirs of their union. Eris, the goddess of strife and discord, wore her pain as an identity. She was generally unpleasant and toxic, but Ares loved her. She was his twin, and if anyone understood him, she did. She embraced their fate. Everyone hated her, but she knew what she was. Ares managed to keep to himself. His parents shouting matches, his aunts and uncles dragging mortals this way and that. All this helped him to withdraw. Until, one day, his fate found him. Ares had come to associate his parents' attention with alarm. If either was going to notice him, they were going to use Ares as a pawn against the other. That wasn't what was happening here, though. He and Zeus, his dad, walked along the battlefield, and Ares nearly wretched. Carnage, carnage everywhere, sweat, blood, the rank odor of legions of men pressing against each other, stabbing around shields, swords and spears tearing skin and muscle, slicing and hooking organs and intestines and pulling them out into the dirt. Zeus swung the sword. He raised it up in front of his son, Ares. This, this was a sword. He cut an arc through the air. Used this to stab guys in the chest, crunch ribs, cut tendons. He tossed the sword aside. Next up, javelin. Zeus lined up a shot and threw it. A scream and Ares winced. You have not lived until you've seen a guy screaming with one of these coming out of his head. Zeus picked up a, a bow and arrow. How did this get in his stuff? Apollo, he yelled. Keep your toys out of here. It's not a toy, Dad. Apollo stormed over and wrenched the bow from Zeus's hand. It's a bow and arrow. Same thing, Zeus said with a smirk. You can't get up close and personal with a bow. You can't experience all the little sights and smells. And Zeus noticed that Ares was looking away. Um, Zeus snapped his fingers to get Ares' attention. Hey, bud, what's up? Then Zeus looked down in disgust. Ares was writing? Ares said, yeah, it was just... All this was a lot to remember, and no, Zeus said, it's not a lot to remember. This is who you are. You're my son, god of war. 
This is second nature to you, so you don't need notes. What in the world? Does Hades need notes to look after the dead? Does Poseidon need notes to ocean or beach? Do I need notes to, I don't know, whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing? No, you're you. You're the god of war, bud. You war. You love it. The smell, this iron-laden stench of blood. This is you. Zeus looked down at his son. You love this, right? Ares raised the sword in his hands. He... You love this, right? Zeus said. This time it was not a question. Ares nodded. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Zeus grimaced. Ugh, nasty business, this war. Someone has to watch over the slaughter. Might as well be someone who likes it. It's shameful, though. Shameful that you take such pleasure in pain. Zeus shook his head in disgust. How could he have such a disgusting son? Probably Hera's fault. He disappeared in a flash and left Ares at the war. The first war between humans, surrounded by terror and carnage that was now, irrevocably, his domain. Dionysus took off the headphones. Did they, did they get any of that? Was there anything usable there? Because it sounded to him like an apocryphal, artistic license mess of a backstory. He felt like people were getting tired of them trying to humanize the Greek pantheon by filling in motivations and such. I thought that they would get tired of it too, Xanthius noted, but those episodes are due in numbers. True. Okay, so here's the pitch. We keep the Roman thing. Maybe edit through the crybaby backstory and use the war to segue us into Ovid's description of the creation of the world, with the war and such. I don't know, Xanthius sat back. He thought an Ares episode was strong enough on its own. Well, this is why you're not an executive producer, Dionysus said. Okay, they would pick it up from the first human war thing area. He turned to Ares, telling him to take five, but not go too far. They needed him for the next segment. Dionysus said, all right, first human war. They would start with Ovid's creation of the world. Ovid, who was a Roman born in 43 BC, a Roman who loved Mars, a.k.a. Ares. Not the same, Xanthius cut in, and Dionysus rolled his eyes. We'll get to the actual beginning of the beginning, but that will be right after this. When I think about relationships, ours obviously comes to mind. We do life together, but we also work together and figuring out how that works. It's something we've been purposeful about for a long time. And because of that, it is what it is today. It is. You know, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. And I don't necessarily agree with all of that. Any relationship requires an investment in someone else, but also taking a look at ourselves. And therapy can be a structured place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships, whether we're talking about a friend, a coworker, a significant other, or someone else entirely. One thing we've learned through therapy is that the goal is not to change the other person. You can't control that. You can, however, learn and practice the tools that help strengthen your interactions and help you all work together. It feels good to grow and to grow together. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's conveniently online, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, knowing you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com Myths today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com Myths. 
So in the beginning, there was chaos, Dionysus said, like a whole mess of chaos. Chaos for days, if there were days, which there weren't, because it was all chaos. But then a god pulled everything together, brought the earth lower because it was denser. Everything hung in perfect, symmetrical, spherical balance. Wait, spherical? I thought everyone in the ancient world, e.g. i.e. this world, thought the earth was flat. Xanthius sighed at his lines, which he nailed. Nope, not even the ancient Greeks thought the world was flat, Dionysus pointed out. Seriously, look it up. Anyway, chaos, 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 dozens of lines of chaos, then God. Dionysus flipped through his notes. Which God? Xanthius asked. Dionysus shrugged, no word. It just said, quote, the God, whichever one of the gods, according to the Penguin Classics translation. So, yeah, basically we're dealing with massively unknowable metaphysical stuff. Let's not get too bogged down in the details. Anyway, hot areas, cold areas, Goldilocks just right areas, the earth had it all. It had beasts of the ground, birds in the air, fish things in the ocean. Then the Titan, Prometheus, sprinkled some raindrops on some seeds of heaven and boom, people. Okay, so wait, Prometheus, where did he come from? Xanthius shook his head, circling back on his notes. Oh, his dad was Iapetus, Dionysus said. Mm, okay, follow-up question, who is he? Son of Uranus and Gaia, do you not know your historical facts? This was before the baby he shoved back in her womb castrated him with a sickle, Dionysus said. Okay, but you didn't mention any of that. It might be hard for listeners to keep up. Xanthius was just trying to help. Dionysus said that this is a poetic and fun recounting of the creation of the world. Why was he fact-checking everything? Okay, so to recap, chaos, 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 somebody did something... Gaia got with her son, Uranus, had a bunch of kids called Titans. One of those was Prometheus, who molded people to be different from the animals because they look up to heaven and walk erect. What about crocodiles? Xanthius asked. Their eyes are on the top of their heads. They're always looking up. Oh, or birds. They're literally flying through heaven all the time, Xanthius noted. Dionysus said that this is metaphorical, like humans are the first living creatures to look up to the heavens and wonder about their place in the world. Humans are the only creatures for whom their own existence is a question they'll never be able to answer. Little knuckleheads. Anyway, it was a golden age. People always did what was right. Trust prevailed. No laws were given because no laws were needed. There was no need for cities or armor or farming because it was constantly spring. People could pick food whenever they needed. Flowers were kissed to life by Zephyr, the wind. Rivers of milk flowed, which is how you want to get your unpasteurized milk, from a river that's been flowing in the warm open air for days on end, over dirt and rocks with animals and people walking through. Then Cronus was cast into Tartarus by Zeus. Uh, you, you mean Saturn was cast into Tartarus by Jupiter, Xanthius corrected. Dionysus said, oh, that's right, okay. Roman, so... Saturn was Cronus and Zeus was Jupiter. Got it. Anyway, the Titanomachy was when the Olympians, so Zeus, sorry, Jupiter and his gang fought their Titan parents. And the end of the Titanomachy marked the beginning of the Silver Age. The Silver Age was, okay, not as nice as the Golden Age, better than bronze. Things couldn't continue perfect forever. 
And the newly in charge Olympians, uh, well, they got up to some stuff. Hades kidnapped Persephone, and her mom, Demeter, mourns for her almost half of the year. So that put an end to the perpetual spring. Climate change messes with some stuff. Rain and snow became a thing. People took refuge in houses. And they could no longer rely on the easy pickings of food from the field or that sweet, sweet river milk. So they had to start farming. They subjugated animals, which the animals did not love. But even all this was better than the Bronze Generation. The Bronze Age, yep, Xanthius murmured. Blown right through this, all right. Not the Bronze Age, though, Dionysus noted. That's a different thing. Historically, most of what happens in Greek myth is in the Bronze Age, which spanned from 3300 BC to 1200 BC. The Bronze Generation, that time in the creation of the world, was worse. People started grouping together in cities, and that led to greater inequality and want. But this wasn't even the worst, because after that, the Iron Age. All loyalty, truth, and conscience went into exile. Things that had been common to all, like the earth, were measured and marked, owned by those who had the weapons and the will to use them. People worked the earth to exhaustion and mined into the deep, finding the treasures that the gods themselves had hidden away. People couldn't trust their own children not to kill them. All the duty to gods and men lay vanquished. War. War was all around. Dionysus said this was where Ares cried about seeing all those dead people. This was where we're going to loop it all back in. But it wasn't widespread war and destruction that finally turned the gods on people. It was a dinner party. Zeus, sorry, Jupiter, shook his head. No matter how hard he tried, he just could not get the taste of human flesh out of his mouth. Blech. He looked all around. So yeah, he was thinking of hitting the reset button with this whole humanity thing. Sending a flood to flush out the junk. He's tried nothing and he's all out of ideas. The earth could be for nymphs, fawns, satyrs. They're fun. Humans, though? Ugh. The gods, Juno, Venus, Minerva, and the others, were in an uproar. If they got rid of the mortals, who was going to sacrifice to them? Zeus said it was fine. He would father a new type of mortal, wink. It was all good. It wasn't. And they demanded to know what prompted this. They were just going to say it. it was an overreaction. Zeus, proving that he would never overreact, screamed at them and shot lightning bolts until they managed to calm him down. They didn't get it. Like Kaon, the king of Arcadia tried to kill him after he fed him a prisoner, a human prisoner. The Olympians were going to need a lot more clarification on that. Zeus, well, sorry, once again, Jupiter, was traveling around Arcadia, pulling an Odin, pretending to be just a random wanderer, and this chump, like Kaon, got it in his head to test out the king of the gods by feeding him a person, a man under Jupiter's protection which I totally knew was a person, Jupiter said. Completely unrelated, he thanked Lycaon for the lovely meal and went to bed. Juno, Minerva, and Apollo. Wait, Apollo? Yeah, Apollo has the same name in Greek and Roman mythology. Xanthius scrolled through the Wikipedia page. Huh. Anyway, they all looked at each other, and Jupiter said that Lycaon made a second mistake. He tried to kill Jupiter, probably because he thought Jupiter didn't recognize he had eaten a person. 
which he totally did. He just didn't mention it. It's called manners. Anyway, Jupiter brought the house down. In a deadly way, not a funny way. He collapsed the house on Lycaon's family, servants, everyone. Everyone but Lycaon. Lycaon, he spared. But the king's cloak became shaggy and stuck to his skin. His teeth, ears, and his snout became long and also a snout. Because he was as unrestrained as a wolf in his testing of the gods, that was what Jupiter turned him into. A wolf. And just like, let him go out there. As a werewolf, the first werewolf, he still stalks the world. Because Jupiter is one of the good guys. So Jupiter's plan, flood the place. He would use his thunderbolts, but those were kind of hard to make. And he was worried about catching the sky on fire. So water it was. Jupiter gathered the storm clouds. Neptune struck the earth. The people who could rushed their boats, eventually starved. Those who couldn't ended up like the deer, lions, and birds, staying afloat for as long as they could before succumbing to exhaustion. The world became quiet. Everything mortal was now gone. If you've ever like thrown your phone in frustration and then immediately regretted it because now all you have is remorse and a broken phone, that's how Jupiter felt, but on a more global scale. In his anger over being tricked into eating a human, that one that he totally knew was a human, he had killed them all. As soon as the last cry went quiet, with the final humans slumping over in their gently rocking boat, Jupiter felt despair. Neptune's son, Triton, blew his horn, and the seas started retreating, apparently pulling all the bodies down like a drain pulls suds. It was quiet. Too quiet, but in a sad way, not an ominous way. Then, voices. Tears. Someone lived. Two someones. Their boat had come to rest on Mount Parnassus. They had survived. They were Pyrrha and her husband, Deucalion. He was a son of Prometheus, and she was a niece of Prometheus. They were good people, and they were now relics, Deucalion mourned. They found their way to a temple of Themis. They prayed to the gods, please, if there was anything they could do, let them save their species. Themis, from her waterlogged temple, heard them and turned to Zeus, who responded with a nod an image shimmering to life in front of the two remaining humans, they were to take the bones of their mother and throw them over their shoulders. They would bring the humans back. Well, it would make new humans. The old ones were very much dead. Both Deucalion and Pyrrha recoiled. The bones of their mother? Wasn't that, like, extremely disrespectful? Then they thought about it. A Greek or Roman god would never do or ask something that was disrespectful, they actually said and believed. Deucalion had another thought. Maybe it was a riddle, a metaphor. It was rocks. Pyrrha didn't know what he meant, but Deucalion held up his arms. The earth was their mother. The earth was everybody's mother. Her bones were stones. Deucalion picked up a handful of pebbles from the ground outside the temple, turned, took a deep breath, and tossed the stone back over his shoulder. The stone dropped on the ground and lingered, but only for a moment. It pulled the dirt, water, and other stones on the ground into itself. It knit veins and arteries, formed organs, made skin and hair. Eventually, 
blinked to life. A human man. Pira turned and tossed some rocks over her shoulder, and the same thing happened. A human woman rose from the earth. The pair embraced the very confused beings, gathered up the stones, and got to traveling. They traveled for as long as they could, in as many lands as they could, everywhere dropping stones and bringing up whole villages of people. When they finally died, after a long life, the world celebrated Deucalion and Pyrrha, without whom the world, as they knew it, would not exist. Now that we're at the end of the beginning, we'll get to the middle of Aerie's story, but that will, once again, be right after this. Wait, I don't see how this has anything to do with Ares. It's even only very loosely Roman, Xantheus said to Dionysus. Xantheus, Xander, X-Man. What we're doing is sort of a stealth anthology thing because no one likes Ares, Dionysus said. Xantheus said that he had been thinking about that. Maybe people hated Ares because they reminded him of themselves, of the anger and violence possible to all humans, and the fact that war seems to follow us no matter how much we might want peace. Dionysus said, no, they weren't doing that this week. This week was fun stories they hadn't told before. No abstract moralizing and reframing Greek mythological figures. Dionysus called out, and a production assistant brought Ares back into the tent. All right, so next up, it's something of an Aphrodite story, Dionysus said. Sorry, Venus. Romans, remember? He gestured to Ares. So, safe to say that Ares and Aphrodite had something of a history, right? Would he mind teeing up the next story with an anecdote? Ares said that, she was everything to him. Dionysus's smile melted into listless boredom as Ares recounted their first meeting. He had been there when Aphrodite had been led to Olympus. Like most, he had been stricken when he saw her face. The only difference? She returned his gaze. They hadn't been able to take their eyes off each other as she went in to meet with Zeus. Then he betrothed her to Hephaestus, who brought back his mom bound to a chair. It was a whole thing. And if you want some more context on this one, check out episode 318, Sad Lad. Basically, Hera had been kidnapped by Hephaestus and Zeus, seeing Aphrodite on Earth as something of a problem, that her beauty would cause the men of Olympus to fight with each other, which sounds more like a them problem than a her problem, but whatever. Anyway, he said that whoever brought Hera back could marry Aphrodite. Well, Hephaestus, the smith god, brought her back himself finding something of a loophole. And Zeus, who never tired of finding ways to be cruel, thought that marrying the goddess of love and beauty to someone he found to be repulsive was hilarious. We didn't need to find a reason to meet up, Ares said. Aphrodite had felt it too. After dropping a message for her husband, notice the air quotes, Ares said, and Dionysus grimaced, that was too many air quotes. Anyway, soon, Aphrodite stopped by his house in Thrace, which includes parts of the modern-day countries of Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece, Xanthius chimed in. You, you have a dog? Aphrodite said, as Ares showed her around the house. He said, yeah, a couple. They were shut in a room so they wouldn't bug her. Oh, I love dogs, Aphrodite smiled. Ares said, she was sure? 
Okay. Aphrodite nodded, and Ares let loose the dogs of war. They were good dogs. Ares sat down next to Aphrodite. They knew. They knew without words that the other understood. He was the bloodthirsty god of war. She was the goddess of beauty and love. Both of them were defined by their passions, and both of them were more than that. No one else wanted to see it, though. They wanted them to be simple, so they could put Ares and Aphrodite in a box. As long as they had each other, though, they could stand all the rest. Ares and Aphrodite kissed. That's beautiful, Dionysus said, not looking up from his phone. Uh, did she ever mention a guy named Pygmalion? Oh, uh, yeah, Ares said. He didn't see what that little creep had to do with. Can you say it in a full sentence? Dionysus interrupted. Uh, yeah, I remember Aphrodite mentioning a guy named Pygmalion, Ares said. Perfect, great, that's all we need. Dionysus turned to Xanthius and whispered, we'll cut the rest of that. Before turning back to Ares with a smile, awesome, we'll let you know when we need you. Thank you for your help. Honey, I'm home, Pygmalion called out. No one answered. Oh, his wife. He carried the fabrics through the house, saying that he was out in the market and, ugh, women, always with their kisses and their lewd and lascivious movements, saying sultry and alluring things like, hello, and why are you staring at us? He couldn't even with women. But his love understood she wasn't like other women. He turned the corner to see a statue. It was her, the woman he loved. What is that you're saying, my dear? You want me to caress you before putting on this nice dress I bought for you today? Pygmalion, the sculptor, said he was more than happy to oblige. But first, smoochin' time. He took her marble body into his arms and it well, yeah, it was weird. If it wasn't born from a place of such intense misogyny, it would be funny and awkward weird to be making out with a marble or maybe ivory statue. But it did have a very problematic origin. Pygmalion disliked that he was so intensely disliked by the opposite sex. And he decried the lack of morals in Cyprus. Not because he was a particularly moral individual, but because the women wouldn't have what he perceived to be a lack of morals with him. So he loathed them, and taking to his workshop, he found a way to slake this intense, hateful loneliness. He threw himself into his work until he could throw himself into the arms of his work. He created, to his own personal taste, the perfect woman. She looked like a real woman. In fact, anyone who visited him might have thought that, if anyone visited him, which they didn't, because he was a hateful creep. He would spend way too long caressing her marble skin, which he smoothed out completely. He would buy her clothes and jewels and shells to wear. But the story is ugh, painstakingly clear that he preferred her naked. What? Enough smoochin'? Time for spoonin'? Yes, dear, Pygmalion smiled, and then scooted over the triple-reinforced couch and got out the pulleys and all of his rigging. You see, on the light end, that statue had to be at least 400 pounds. In the text, it said that he laid down to lay next to it. But there was no mention of the intense planning and logistics that went into such an endeavor. 
He laid down, stroking her skin, worrying about bruising it, even though that was impossible for many reasons. Also, I feel like if you're lovingly embracing someone with such intensity and abandon that bruising them is a concern, you seem to be doing it very wrong. But if loving her was wrong, Pygmalion did not want to be right, because he was pretty focused on his own needs and concerns and completely unable to empathize or relate to anyone or anything around him. Anyway, this continued on for far too long, and once again, it would be cute and quirky weird, and not off-putting and hateful weird if it wasn't so intensely misogynistic. Pygmalion had one wish in his heart, one he didn't dare to speak aloud, except to Aphrodite. Back with Dionysus, Xanthius cleared his throat. Venus, sorry, I mean, basically the same thing, right? Not the same, Xanthius corrected, again. Anyway, the festival of Venus had arrived, and Pygmalion emerged from his workshop slash bedroom. April 1st, the Romans had the Veneralia, in honor of Venus Vericordia, Venus, the changer of hearts, and Fortuna Virilius, Vero Fortune. The festival included a ritual bathing of the statue of Venus, decorating and offering incense to either Venus or Fortuna Virilius. Pygmalion emerged, slouching and uncomfortable in a crowd with all these women, who were nothing like his woman who wasn't a real woman, but then he had an idea. With the Greek gods, everything was possible even many things that shouldn't be possible, like a guy turning into a rain of golden coins and impregnating someone, or a woman turning into a cow and talking to a guy who had his liver torn out by an eagle each morning and regenerating, only to have it torn out again because he offended said gods. Really, any guardrails would have been nice for the Greek gods, but their immense power and complete lack of restraint filled Pygmalion with hope, a cautious hope, a hope so meek he couldn't even utter the words in his heart. Not completely, anyway. He laid down his offering and, acknowledging the power of the gods by saying that all gifts were within their power, he asked for the ability to wed, not his ivory maiden, as he wanted to ask, but a woman resembling his ivory maiden. In a time before pyrotechnics, it's generally a good sign when, after you ask the gods for something, flames shoot up around that god's statue. Three times, the flames shot toward the sky from the altar of Venus. The people looked on in awe, and Pygmalion stumbled off back toward his workshop, not liking the public attention. He went into his workshop and lit the lantern, and, as was his custom literally every time he entered his door, he went to his statue and gave it a kiss on the lips. This time, though, it thought that it was warm from him, from his previous kisses. He kissed the statue a lot, but he figured that, while he was a curious man, he should feel her more. And the rest of her was warm too. He rubbed her skin, and it yielded beneath his finger. Like beeswax, the poem tells us, he realized that his prayer had been heard by Venus, who wasn't technically the Greek Aphrodite, but who shared a lot of the same attributes. If you were hoping for an excited yet restrained and respectful appreciation of his art crossing the impermeable line between realism and reality, well, that's not what happened. The story described the hands that formed the statue appreciating his work and the throbbing veins of the woman as she came to life to a stranger kissing her, which 
could mean excitement, also could mean confusion and horror. Pygmalion, getting over his hatred of women, really in this one particular instance with this one particular woman, was pleased to find that he could take her into his arms without a bunch of complicated ropes. And we don't need to go into it, but nine months later, Paphos was born. She was the namesake of the city in southwest Cyprus. Wow, uh, kind of a gross and creepy story, Xanthius shook his head. You mean the story of an artist who loves his work? Is that what you're against? People taking pride in what they do, Dionysus asked. He would have Xanthius know that, to the medieval and early modern world, Pygmalion was so unaccountably popular. He was the epitome of an artist. Xanthius said that aside from the man's obsession with an idealized woman and a person being born to immediately enter into a physical relationship with their creator, aside from that, is that what art is? Mimesis? Technical skill to create something lifelike? To mimic what already exists? Saying nothing, being nothing? Is that all art is? More detail? Additionally, when Pygmalion made the woman... He stopped working. He was no longer an artist. He had, quote, carved a material monument to his artistry, as one critic later says. Further, when she became a real woman, she ceased being art. If anything, this is an argument against realism. Hey, Ares knocked on the door. Um, not that debates on the nature of art weren't boring and overdone or anything, but did they still need him? He had other stories. There was that time he was trapped in a jar and there weren't any wars. Dionysus checked his notes. Yeah, they, they already did that one. Okay, there was the time he turned into a bull and Paris, the prince of Troy, judged him the best bull, accidentally leading to the Trojan War because Paris was deemed to be a good judge. Dionysus said, yeah, they also did that one too because, and they mentioned it in Athena's episode a couple months ago. Ares nodded. Okay, okay. What about the time he saw Aphrodite with Adonis? When, in his rage, Ares turned into a boar and gored him right in front of her, killing not just Adonis, the beautiful human, but any chance of being with Aphrodite again after he fled in shame after their affair. Oh, there, see, you said it, Dionysus said. All right, they should wrap this up. There would be no hymns to Ares. He would forever be the side of humanity that they themselves detested could not rid themselves of. Ares sat stunned before burying his face in his hands. Dionysus took a breath. All right, they are what they needed. Great job, pal. Dionysus patted him on the back and then grimaced. You okay? Ares said it was true. He was hated. He would always be hated. Dionysus said it wasn't true. In, I don't know, hundreds of years, he would get a non-gritty reboot into the Roman Mars. They would love him for like a thousand years. Not the same, Dionysus. Xanthius took off his headphones. We've been over this. Oh, yeah, I guess you're different enough that it doesn't really make sense to see you as the same god. Sorry, Ares. Looks like you're you. Forever. This was a challenging story because Ares, in Greek myth, doesn't have a lot of character to him. He does stuff, he gets defeated a surprising amount of times, and he gets in a lot of fights, and people hate him. 
This is probably the third try I had when running this episode, and I landed on trying to mimic the general dismissal of him that a lot of storytellers take, while also begrudgingly including him. I had fun, eventually, writing it, and I hope you liked it too. Next week, we're back in 1001 Nights. But if you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. And for less than the price of a 37-inch inflatable cow, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make people think you're low-key trying out the farmer life, but only with, like, tiny cows. They also advertise them for pool parties, but tiny cows don't really scream fun pool party to me. Anyway, check out the post on mythpodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Bonacon from medieval bestiaries in Europe. The Bonacon, also called the Bonasus and Bonacho, which I'm going to choose to pronounce as Bonacho, was what would happen if you turned a bull's horns so that the points were angled toward its forehead. It's a weird description, and there's a picture on the site. And you gave it a horse's mane, and oh yeah, caustic burning feces it can shoot with a range of up to a third of a mile. It's said to possess the feces because its horns don't face out, which, I mean, not gonna lie, I feel a little cheated. I also don't have horns with points that angle out, or at all, and I wasn't gifted with feces that shoot for 600 meters and scorch pursuers like Greek fire. Medieval bestiaries, if you weren't familiar, were collections of pictures and descriptions of animals from the Middle Ages. What makes bestiaries fun are not just the monks that got very bored and peppered them with many not-safe-for-work illustrations, but that it was believed that every animal held its own special meaning, and also was a walking religious allegory. The pelican, thought to tear open its chest so its young could feast on its blood, was thought to symbolize Christ sacrificing himself. Like we talked about last week, the magpie was someone who was vain and talked in church. Well, the bonicon, or the bow nacho, as reputable podcasters have called it, means nothing. I thought that there was no limit to the imagination and willingness to bend a meaning or reading of the animal to make it fit with a religious message, but apparently for the bonicon, the bull that sprays burning hot feces, well, that's, that's a bridge too far. Even the medieval monks aren't touching that one. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 